And I think everybody that has led the world in new ideas has at one point in their life been crazy in the last, you know, 100,000 years of innovation of thought. Um, and I feel like if it doesn't sound crazy to me being someone who's a crazy hippie in capital markets, then it's probably not worthy of thinking about. So I like my I like thinking about the thought that most people are unwilling to think about or trying to get to because it's just too big. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today was Greg Wendt, a CFP and a comprehensive wealth management practitioner who helps people understand how to invest their money in ways that are helpful to the world. Greg has access to Crazy Wisdom and I learned a lot of things particularly about biomimicry and circular capitalism. Biomimicry is a really interesting thing because if we can design systems that integrate with nature, I believe that will lead to an anti-fragile world. There's two, well, there's two options I see. So we either adapt ourselves back into nature, learn how to live in a symbiotic relationship with, with nature, as humans can do, or we go the dystopian route and we section ourselves off in these urban environments as the rest of nature goes to shit and kind of, you know, walk around from air-conditioned place to air-conditioned place, a little bit like what they do in Dubai now. Those are the two options I see. If we can harness the power of nature, but not use it extractively, purely extractively, and we can kind of copy the systems that nature already sets up, I think we have a better chance of surviving. I don't know. I'd be curious to what you, the listeners, think. So if you have some thoughts on that, please tweet to at Stuart Alsop III about this. What do you think, whether it's a dystopia or whether we can mimic biology and essentially learn to live more harmoniously with uh, this beautiful earth that we live on? I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what you think, if you have any insights on that. Also, I just want to let you know that I am still accepting applications for the online course with Anders Jones, uh, who raised $40 million in his Series A, and we're going to teach startup founders how to raise money for their distributed team. So if, if you're starting a company at the seed stage or Series A or going into your Series A, then I highly recommend applying to this course. Um, Anders is extremely smart and has raised $40 million and has done both seed and Series A. Um, he also runs a distributed team out of Baltimore. And he is very knowledgeable, has a lot of wisdom. I've previously interviewed him. So yeah, if you are interested in that, you can find out more information by subscribing to my blog, stuartalsop.substack.com, S-T-E-W-A-R-T-A-L-S-O-P.substack.com. And I hope you have a great day. Please let me know what you think of this episode. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here today is Gregory Wendt. He is a CFP and a comprehensive wealth management advisor, a consultant, and a regenerative uh, macroeconomist. Uh, really excited to have you on here. Um, you, we've had a couple conversations so far. Really interested in this kind of intersection between business person and hippie. Uh, and you said you you've been in it for a while now, and I'm really excited to to hear what more about what you have to say about that. Hippiedom. You know, what is a hippie? I guess the question is, is it just somebody with long hair or someone who wears beads or someone who smokes ganja or who knows the word ganja means or someone who knows Om Namah Shivaya or all of those things. And I kind of had been, well, I won't admit to all of that, but <laughs> yes. Um yeah, I grew up here in Southern California, and thanks again for having me on your show today. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know where, what, what is the, you know, the, the nexus between hippiedom and, you know, what people today think a hippie is and what hippies actually think they are. Um, and, uh, what difference does it make what anyone thinks? Um, I mean, I just, it was really fun. I went to a movie, uh, recently I saw a documentary about the creation of the Woodstock festival Mm. and a point by point, um, documentary about everything that, that brought that about and all the dynamics and all the problems and all the synchronicities and the, the really benevolent intention to bring community together for a better world. And it's a magical documentary. And I, um, I'm not quite old enough to actually have much engagement with that. I'm 54. So I'm a child of the sixties, but I wasn't old enough, uh, to go to that, that festival. At least my parents didn't go and drag me along. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, my mom started taking yoga in 1979, 80, uh, shortly after my parents uh, divorced in a suburb of Los Angeles called Palos Verdes. And at the time, I was very interested in science and girls and water polo and swimming and also personal development. By the time I was 14, I had developed a passion for improving the way I think and the way that I relate to the world. And I, I really largely learned that from the people around my mother who she engaged with who were committed to personal development. And it was a new idea for me. And uh, the idea that we could actually change the way our wiring in our minds works rather than just which belief system am I going to adopt, whether it be Christendom or scientism, or capitalism, or Carl Saganism, and the movie, you know, the television show Cosmos, you remember that show, mm-hmm. or all of the above, because I was kind of interested in all of them. Uh, my father was a, a, an entrepreneur uh, from Los Angeles as well. So, I mean, that, that kind of set of ideas, imagine uh, the idea that we're all star stuff, that was kind of a revelation for me from Carl Sagan. If you remember his billions and billions comment, I mean, if, if you don't, if you're listening to this and you don't know who Carl Sagan is, S-A-G-A-N, or if you haven't heard his commentary, just, you know, find him on YouTube. There's some amazing stuff. And imagine being 14, watching him talk about the way that black holes and stars and the cosmos is built and they created the uh i think it was the voyager which was a uh piece of space exploration and broadcast equipment you might say that they just spun out into the universe and put a record on it that had some kind of uh indication of what a human is and presuming some alien would find it and you know, put the LP on, on a, on literally a turntable so that they could decipher and decode what was on the gold disc. And it's still at JPL and down in uh, Pasadena. And then, okay, how do you transmit what a human being is and who are the people that created this or the beings that created this thing? And that was the stuff that I was really into at the time. And then the idea that we're star stuff was 
kind of an evolutionary step from the, you know, the, the reductionist Newtonian materialism of the time that atoms are neuter, neutral, inert matter banging around like ball bearings in a big pachinko game and we're made out of them. Something about star stuff kind of inspired me that there's something that I'm made of stars, but what? You mean the heavy metals in my body were created in some supernova across the galaxy? What? So that's when I started tripping on stuff. That's pretty psychedelic, actually. And I... This is what I don't get about scientists who don't have a aliveness to them or a passion to them. Because yeah. the stuff that they're studying is just like every like some of the most profound spiritual experiences I've had have come from reading about science and about... Um, one book in particular called the beginning of infinity by david deutsch just like whoa like it really it led my rational brain into an understanding of what it could be like to comprehend infinity and and that that just kind of like blew a hole through my head because i can't you can't comprehend infinity so it's like um it's only you know what's that's really sexy and by the way that that notion of i've been thinking about this we're on a we're already on the track not even a tangent here but because there's really nowhere we're going but more <laughs> on i mean this is yeah there's just a big spiral um i think it all started when i said something about psychedelic and the nature of the cosmos but what you just said is that i was reflecting on cosmology of astrophysics and the notion of the big bang and where it started right and if you're losing us just keep on track we're going to talk about impact investing and capital markets evolution and sustainability and climate change and capital markets so we'll get there but just bear with us you know because we are crazy but you know that's what it takes now to solve the world's problems but back to the big bang that the idea that we must have a beginning of the universe and that the universe is expanding and must somehow get to some end to come back to a retraction is fundamentally sounding like the Bible when you said the beginning was the word and the word was God and it went bang. What? So I think that most scientists that believe in the Big Bang Theory are not willing to admit that their cosmology is limited to the muggle mind that there must be a beginning of this infinity. Mm. When, like you, most people are a little bit challenged by that when we encounter the notion of infinity and that does it exist if my mind cannot conceive it? Mm. Well, hold on a second. That makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to come up with some story. I'm going to project on the thing I don't know so that I can be more comfortable, even though I know it's not true. Mm. And then that becomes the basis of all theory. And, you know, one of my mentors who wrote a book called Creating Alternative Futures as her first book, which is an, a reflection on economics, she says economics is fundamentally theory-induced blindness. But the theories, I think, are good, yet the key is if you're not going to reflect on the things that the theory creates a blind spot and look at ways of incorporating the things that were blind and not argue that we see enough, but to recognize we see what we see, but we want to explore what we don't. 
that sense of curiosity is rare, I find, in our world right now of people that need certainty and know what they believe and then argue with people that believe differently rather than go into common ground of mutual inquiry and discovery and creativity in the way we discover, which, again, is a way of saying thank you, mm. thank you to you for um, going crazy with us because this out-of-the-box thinking is necessary to get to where we need to go. And I think everybody that has led the world in new ideas has at one point in their life been crazy in the last, you know, 100,000 years of innovation of thought. Um, and I feel like if it doesn't sound crazy to me being someone who's a crazy hippie in capital markets, then it's probably not worthy of thinking about. So I like my, I like thinking about the thought that most people are unwilling to think about or trying to get to because it's just too big. Mm -hmm. So let's get to the heart of where the idea of cosmos would be and how that lands in capital markets and how my friend Hazel that I mentioned wrote that book, Creating Alternative Futures. That book opens with something like, Imagine the scenario to be on a planet where free electrons come in from our mother star. Mm. Now, that's the context of an economics book. Mm. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So we're scrambling on the ground and figuring out how we can destroy the biosphere less with our need for energy in a world that the energy just flows in from the sun for free. Now, is that not some form of crazy? Mm. Mm. And then to think and challenge that crazy is crazy because it's not what the herd believes mm. is the kind of reflection of someone who's been put into an insane asylum incorrectly and they're actually not crazy, but they cannot get out because the the, the captors do not understand what they're saying. And this is interesting because uh, I read a great book called Loon Shots that talks about how entrepreneurs very, very commonly experience this because entrepreneurs create organizations uh, which then are involved with people and people, once they're over a certain size, then a group of size, then they start to make decisions based on the group uh, as opposed to kind of what makes sense really. Um, and uh, the group dynamics, and this is, gets into another podcast I just recorded with David Broxenhorn, who has a uh, framework, which is a very interesting framework that they're essentially, you know, to simplify a bit, there are two types of people. There are people who pay attention to natural laws of the universe, and there are people who pay attention to social dynamics. Uh, and social dynamics aren't part of this natural world, but they go heavily towards the social dynamics. And you can't, if you, the uh, crazy ideas come from the natural world. like. You know, the idea that that the earth revolves around the sun was crazy. People got killed for, for talking about that. Um, like, so, so it, it, the natural world, to most people, the laws that the natural world goes by are so frightening sometimes that they, they create a alternative reality, like you were saying. Uh, and, and then, and it, and, and that, that is not a place of creativity. That's a place of fear. And, and well, I think that's a really good reflection. And I want to just build on that for a moment and just look at 
how we've gotten here as a civilization where at least I think 50 something percent of the humans on earth live inside of an urban setting in a major city, right? And 60 something percent of the GDP comes from cities. Mm. Mm. And I was reflecting on, you know, if your parents and your grandparents and their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents going back to a city like Varanasi or London or Rome, you've got 2,000 years of their parents. My parents were always only in the social, Mm. economic, and environmental context of living in a city with walls and streets Mm. and sewers and farms out there. And then out there farther is the forest and over there is the ocean. So that basic geometry of reality, you have a hundred generations that don't even question that fundamental premise because it's all we've ever known. Mm. And then when you do the cosmology in the Abrahamic and patriarchal religions, and I'm not using patriarchy in a critical way. I'm just saying the fact that there's a male God that is somehow disenchanted from nature. And then look at that basic socio-psychological premise Mm. that there's a hundred to 200 generations that have never really known a wild lifestyle and it's in, in embedded in our in our bodies. I mean, I won't even call it DNA, as otherwise I'll be criticized for being a hippie like well, so, well, Sheldrake. Well, you, you can get into epigenetics. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I was pointing to that. Where that, where that, it does make sense that over a certain amount of generations, the expression of the gene changes based on the environment of the parents, and that gets passed down. Exactly. So I'm thinking I didn't want to get into the controversy of epigenetics. I believe it myself, but some on this call may not. So let's just go with the the thing that we can all agree is fact. You know, memories mm. of grandpa's lifestyle. He's always been, you know, a metallurgist or he's always been, um, you know, a, a, an administrator in some bureaucracy, you know, not my grandfather was a hunter and we landed in a farm and cut a piece of the forest after being wild, feral children in the middle of the island. Mm. Most people in our, in that narrative and the urban dwellers for 200 generations don't have that story necessarily you know, largely. I mean, this is a very broad statement. But why I brought that up was to simply reflect on the social cognitive process that led us to the paradigm of how we see reality here on earth is nature is over Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. and then society is over here inside of the city and somehow economy is somewhere as this abstraction inside of society or somehow adjacent this thing the economy because culture and economics and finance are separate right well when you really look at reality and just observe it for what it is isn't it so that the natural environment includes society as a subset and then the economy is a subset of the natural society so then those are nested systems that have interlocking feedback loops and data and energy going from 
you know, inside and out, all the way out to the natural order and the biosphere back into society. So then if we just look at that fundamental premise that anybody who's observing reality will recognize is so, and then you go to the fundamental premise of every institution that we've inherited, every institution we inherited is diametrically opposed to the very rationale based on what you recognize. In other words, the EPA is set up as if the environment is separate from the Federal Reserve, mm. is separate from the church, and is separate from mm. EMI records. Mm. Like, huh, they're all separate things as if these are separate systems, but they all interweave. And they're all, so then the, the possibility that, that has been really inspiring me is that we can simply, as humans today, without needing to argue about whose point of view or whose paradigm is better, look at the reality of what is going on on planet Earth today mm. and simply observe and share through the observations and designing a better way to morph the institutions we have to then be more nuanced to reality as it is, rather than perpetuating the institutions based on a flawed paradigm that was from 2000 years ago. Mm. But most people do not believe that they are in a position to morph institutional paradigm. Or if they were, they are afraid of being attacked or maybe they're just, it's too big a project because it's not my job and my paycheck does not pay me or, or, or some, etc. version of, why bother? It's just too abstract, but I'm, that's crazy, which is why we're talking about what we do. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at the idea of uh, cosmos and what I just said and tying that into a perspective that is outside of Earth, looking at the sun shining free electrons in, and then the, the cultural evolution that led us to the paradigmatic, uh, you know, prison that we've put ourselves in and then recognizing that the gate is unlocked to just simply reinvent ourselves and the paradigm that we use to then navigate better today when we walk out of the building and look oh well when we can go inside when it's raining and we can walk outside to the garden rather than thinking that we're locked out of the garden mm. what a thought simple mm. paradigmatic shift mm by observation, which every human prior to us has done, which is think outside the box, and then they're crazy, and then it becomes common sense. So some of the crazy that we're talking about is a comprehensive whole Earth, Earth system science, science-based data mm -hmm. structure to look at every single thing going on on planet Earth, including the cultural, societal, cultural evolution, dynamics in all the politics and all the economy and every dollar on the planet, every piece of technology, and every sing single thing that is recorded by the you know myriad space satellites monitoring Earth and crushing all that data into a big data Earth monitoring thing. Mm. So like looking at state A for Earth, and from an objective standpoint, from the science and the data, what is a better state be so that this species that happens to be an organism on Earth called human beings 
can survive beyond the next 20 generations. Mm. Oh, and I'm not going to presume like many people are predicting X, Y, Z. We have so many years. That's nonsense. (laughs) We create the future and anybody who wastes their breath by saying, and I'm wasting my breath for even saving this, but I'll say it anyway, that anyone who's trying to predict how many generations we have left or how many years before the climate monster eats us or whatever, it's just ridiculous because as if you're reading a map and you're saying, when we're on that part of the road in about 40 miles, we're going to encounter something. It's like you're looking at a map. Yeah. <laughs> and it, well, this is the idea. Like if somebody had access to that information, they would be able to also have access to future financial market information and they would make themselves rich. But no one can predict future financial regulation. Like nobody has access to that type of information. People make bets, uh, but, but they don't have access to the future. No model that humans create is accurate uh, to that degree. Correct. And one of my most inspired uh, thought leadership and personal development books is uh, it's called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And in that book, he says to executives and readers, get really comfortable with the fact that you actually create time Mm. and create time with your life. Mm. rather than being a victim. Oh, I'm sorry I'm late because that thing on my arm misinterpreted and I didn't see that those numbers right. It's blaming reality on mm. something that you have agency over. And there's no excuse when you're, when you're using time as an excuse when we have the power to create flow. Um, but that's my, again, another ta- crazy tangent. But coming back into the present here, with you is fundamentally an earth-based model of earth and science-based investing has been an inspiration of Hazel's and mine. And then looking at what is the model that actually has proven to work if we're doing science-based fact. Well, we have 4 billion years of natural systems being the most efficient way to manage minerals, energy flows, water, soil, food, electrons, photons, all that. That's nature, forests, biosphere, and then organisms and how they organize themselves. And if you look at the sophistication of some organisms, in some ways our human organizational systems are no more complex than a termite mound but we're not freaking termites. We're human beings with enormous brains, but we've reduced ourselves to a social order of an insect in some contexts. And it's just ridiculous. And then we use super phones and supercomputers to be more insect-like. It is just a head-scratcher, isn't it? It's just like, what are we doing here? But the opportunity... The opportunity is we're human beings that have big brains so we can reinvent the way these networks work. Well, and that's really interesting because that, that leads up to my question, which is essentially we've got this technology paradigm that builds something separate from nature uh, and then imposes, almost tries to impose its own will and separate and divide and conquer and everything like that. And then we've got this opportunity that you're talking about to design technology to more accurately reflect or mimic technology nature. Right. The notion of biomimicry, you've probably heard of, and you've heard the phrase, 
Well, the idea of ethical biomimicry finance is something that my my friend Hazel Henderson uh, has coined with Janine Benyus from the Biomimicry Institute. And it's a whole framework of using the organizing principles of natural systems to inspire better strategies for capital markets and investment decision making. Mm-hmm. And I, I have uh, led and created a number of panels on this at conferences. One was uh, biomimicry for finance at the Social Capital Markets Conference in 2014 and 15. And then we wanted to do something more systemic than just finance. So our panel in 2016 was called, what was it called? Building an economic ecosystem like three-dimensional chess, Mm. which is the way that bioregions work, which is you've got local groups of communities of trees and plants and animals and watersheds, and then you've got a bioregional watershed. So like in the case of Los Angeles Basin or the Bay Area or the Central Valley, you know, those are somewhat like bioregions, which are local contexts. But within those bioregions are local, local. And then the larger systemic earth system mm. of the larger flows. But that same analogy as a system helps us to look at a fractal structure for a nuanced evolution for economic development and capital markets to be attuned more readily to the bioregional needs of cities and metropolises and small countries mm. and states such that the, the, the inputs for every major city on the planet will be improved if they're localized in some context and improved if they're not. And the macroeconomic dynamics that inform the current version of decision-making about inputs into industry and supply chain and outputs became what I feel is the largest blind spot, which is every pollution, every uh, externality. Externality is a blind spot, which is just wasted resources because every chemical that comes out of a pipe is actually input for some other system mm. if it can actually be managed properly. Interesting. Um, and sending our garbage over to China for them to break up the TV sets with children and and hammers is not exactly that, but it's moving in the right direction, actually. But it's mm. it's not quite as circular as the circular economy people would want, mm. especially when you're, you know, destroying the lives of young children by making them walk around in mercury with their bare feet. Mm. Uh, but that's a whole story in itself, right? So back to regional capital markets and how that ties in with the biosphere. But let's take a step back into the social order that we talk about and implied a little bit underpinning the economic framework. And a lot of the things I've said are very general. And there's a lot of thought and books and science behind the things I'm saying. And you know, they may be challenging to people that are, these ideas may be challenging to any, any of you listening to this uh, that are traditional capitalists or you know what what have you mainly because we have been mis- miseducated i'll tell you a quick story i went to ucla got my degree in economics um 
And years later, I was uh, invited by one of my professors to, he was actually one of the, the top guys in the economics department, to a lecture by a chemist that he knows from another institution talking about the chemistry of meteorology and the greenhouse effect, which is a science-based structure. And then there was quite a bit of talk about earth systems, energy systems, and the energy feedstock on the planet. How much coal do we have? How much uranium do we have? How much natural gas? Can we actually meet the budgetary needs of our economy's energy budget and what we actually need with the current feedstock and what are the problems and all of that basic scientific stuff. And I looked over at the professor, he sat next to me and I said, so are you doing any economic modeling around what, you know, so-and-so is, is talking about and the chemistry and the science of what's going on here on earth and the energy markets? Mm. And, you know, it was like an hour and a half lecture of just super grounded stuff. And he looked at me like I was bonkers. And he was, he was the one that invited his friend to lecture. And he was like, oh, no, we don't think about all that crazy stuff. Because it's, like, it's economics in one section and then chemistry in the other. And they don't cross, basically. Yeah, and I wasn't even talking climate change. I was just talking about the fact that we can't, you, we can't burn all the coal because it will eventually run out. And what are we going to do? Mm. And he was like, that was too external for him. Mm. I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, like, wow, this is a guy that's heading the economics department at UCLA, and this was like 10 years ago. And I'm mm -hmm. like, wow. Now, no disrespect to him. And they say that theories <clears throat> change uh, death by death of the scientists that, uh, who propose them and who are defending them with their tenure. Yep. So this is the kind of thing that we're going back to here. I was digressing again, but we're not really on a tangent here. It's just coming to the point around the limits of economic theory as it's practiced. And some of the ideas that I've said are controversial in traditional economic circles. And that was a good example. But when you actually look at the genesis of our current economic paradigm and see where most of the models and most of the the institutions and the mindset from where they were born is not to say that they're bad. It's just to see like historical analysts anthropologically studying the archaeology of how these ideas came about with, a, with an open mind, just looking at the facts of who thought what and when and what was their cultural context. Very generally speaking, that economic history is something that very few people are trained in unless you're getting a PhD in economics and you're required to take economic history as a... But this has been something I've been really curious about. Mm. Uh, and look at the cultural context of manifest destiny and social Darwinism. Mm. Because if you are in the culture of social Darwinism, which is a post-Renaissance kind of idea that the aristocrats and the white folks are somehow, you know, slavery is not good and aristocracy is not good because we're not Democrats. 
but there has to be some structure that keeps those in power in power as a belief system. So there has to be some notion that, oh, Darwinism, perfect. Survival of the fittest. That fits really well because it's not a class struggle and it's not racist. It's just that some people are better than others. And we have a scientist that's saying it's true and that we're at the top of the heap and we're so benevolent that we think about all those little people. Jeez. And that's the genesis of trickle-down economics. Mm. If we just throw enough of those cakes out there to the streets, those crumbs will fall and those poor people will have something to eat. Mm. Let them eat cake. Mm -hmm. So that's social Darwinism, is the idea that competition is the mechanism through which creativity is done, which is the idea that the struggle in nature between organisms trying to survive and get the limited resources on the pond means that they must compete and fight. And those who make it are the ones who survive. And that is actually factually true, right? Mm-hmm. Yet Darwin also talked about cooperation. Mm-hmm. And he actually mentioned cooperation between species and members of the same species more than competition. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of selective thinking to say com- competition and survival of the fittest, whereas the organisms that survived the best were the ones that cooperated with their own kind more effectively, and those who out-cooperated the other bands of the same kind of organisms. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is read E.O. Wilson's Consilience and look at an ant colony and say ant colonies are proof that cooperation works better Mm. between ants cooperating than ants competing. Mm. So down to the insect level, and then you do a fractal structure all the way up through evolution of life in different species, you will see, if nothing more, that cooperation is equal or more, maybe even more prominent. Which is interesting because that gets into win-win games. And traditionally, people think of as finance as win-lose, meaning I win, you lose. Uh, but what you're talking about is that maybe it has taken a step up. There is a potential for a win-win situation. Is that right? Yes. But we're not even there at the level of finance yet because finance is an app mm. in the operating system of economy on the phone of society, mm-hmm. right? So if we don't have the hardware that we've at least validated that cooperation and competition are two parts of the physical motherboard analogically in a phone, Mm -hmm. that we cannot put a cooperative ecosystem and a cooperating operating system on that to run our finance app. So essentially we need to reorganize at the level of society in order to then create a possibility where the app gets changed in order to uh, organize finance. Right, because my friends who are, and I'm a big fan of a lot of the ideas of AOC and Bernie, but the idea that we need to polarize their ideas against the folks on Wall Street Mm -hmm. is to overlook the fact that the new Green Deal involves creating new banks, which means that's a Wall Street finance structure. Mm -hmm. So the key for me is they're pointing to something more fundamental than green or not green, New Deal or Green New Deal or whatever, they're looking at trying to 
to rewire something from the app level rather than talking about a more fundamental conversation about how we work together and how we design societal structures to inform new economic frameworks from which we can thrive in financial instruments that benefit from that in a capitalist marketplace. What? <laughs> well, that's possible because the idea of so, there's many different ways that the idea of capitalism is applied and it's also a head scratcher to me when i hear people say socialism versus capitalism and then those people on both sides of that argument are arguing over something that they don't even know how to define mm -hmm. so it's it's really surprising to me how misinformed people that get into deep intellectual arguments about any topic of the day. I mean, I, I think a lot of that has to do with trauma though. And, and essentially they're playing out the story of their childhood in, in their, in their political views and, and, and are not trying to exactly. solve problem. They're trying to solve their, their family's problem essentially. Well, I think that goes back to the hippie dumb. Let's talk about hippies mm, for a while. Can we? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is, I think this really speaks to what you just said was such a great opener for, reflecting together on spiral dynamics and cultural development mm. and cultural paradigms. And again, looking at this from the standpoint as if we're an observer off planet, but we're on planet, so we're in it looking at ourselves. We are earthlings in this lifetime. If you believe that we're from the stars, like if you say to people, I'm from the Pleiades or some other form of hippie, language then the first thing you must recognize is you are in a human form to be able to say that so you're first mm. an earthling mm. from the star called sun and then if you actually believe that your your soul is from some other essence whether it be anything we're still all human beings here on earth and we have to start here with this paradigm and then look at how our organism has organized itself over eons in social groups simply for survival and the constructs of patriarchy and warfare and religion were simply being proven now as ineffective instruments to then enable the species to survive, but they were simple survival mechanisms mm. to get us to from point A to point B and we're not going to benefit very much from judging those earlier stages of development. So if you are familiar with spiral dynamics, and maybe you can tell everybody a little bit about what Ken Wilber and spiral dynamics and Gene Gebser and uh, you know uh, a handful of other leaders um, are talking about in spiral I'm, dynamics. I'm actually not, I, I, I'm, but I'm very interested to learn about spiral okay, dynamics. Okay, let me just tell you a little bit about it. Um, there's just one other person who I want to reference. Uh, but I'll get to that in a minute. But sure. Ken Wilber is a philosopher, scholar, who you can read his uh, book called Theory of Everything. That's probably mm -hmm. a good starting point. Mm -hmm. But the gist is to just look at cultural history and observe the data of human evolution and human, human cultural stages of development from indigenous and tribal groups in our history or on planet now and the warlord kind of model, mm. feudalism. Then you have from that kind of roving 
feudal bands that are violent in survival to get resources by warring and grabbing and stealing or protecting from warring and grabbing and stealers to the next stage, which is more of like a city order, or like a church where you have like a monastery and then it becomes a religious order or agrarian communities that organize cities mm-hmm. are those maybe that next wave of development of human organizing. Hmm. But then inside, inside of a church is kind of like, it's a structure that's divinely decreed that you fit into. And then if you look at patrimony or matrimony, meaning that the, the lineage of if my father was a priest, I'm a priest, those kind of social structures of the hmm. castes, caste systems mm. are somewhat in that where you're based on on br- where you've been bred mm. and who your lineage is determines your role in society and that is that stage of development and organizing then you go into kind of a military or corporate meritocracy where an individual has some degree of freedom and agency in where they navigate up and down that structure. And that's where the ideas of the Renaissance and democracy hmm. and, and, and agency for the individual really were born. And then that hierarchy is not unlike the church once you're in it, but you can navigate up and down and play the game. Hmm. But then if you look at hmm. the 60s and the hippie yeah. movement, it was a rejection of all hierarchy mm. and all structure. And that's the next stage of development mm. is to say we all have a fundamental essence as of human autonomy. that is equal. And autonomous. And, that, and autonomous. And that equal autonomy mm-hmm. overrides every other structure. Mm. But if you look at the structures that I've outlined thus far, Generally speaking, every one of those points of view looks down on every other point of view. Previous, yeah. Mm-hmm. Until you get to what is called the integral st- stage, hmm. which is to look at the benefits and challenges of every other stage of development, and then to select which one works in what context. Hmm. But then even that is rejected by every other model until you see things from the paradigm of integral. Mm. Social theorists have presumed it's about 1% to 5% of the population on the planet that are awakening to the benefits of a systemic integral approach. Mm. Another way of looking at it, I think, is systems thinking. Mm. You know, Being able to see many simultaneous perspectives in the multiverse and a contextual fractal model of understanding reality and navigation and navigating systems and decision-making systems depending on the context and having the intellectual curiosity and capacity to be able to navigate multiple contexts at the same time, depending on what is going on and who you are and what you what situation you're in and you know what's so surprising is every one of us individuals do that all day long without even thinking of it if you want to talk about systems thinking Mm. then systems thinking is 
very sophisticated than a 14 year old girl when she's navigating her social network. So it's more complex than any stock analysis, right? We all know what systems thinking is, but we've been trained and entrained to be muggle mind down into a reductionist paradigm that has been full of blind spots just to fit in and belong in the social order of environmental and social destruction. Mm. And then a capital market to then make our job and our paycheck serve the destruction of the very life support systems upon which our species is dependent. Mm. So we have to take an integral whole systems approach to Earth and then and modulate that down to a fractal regional and sub-regional structure and then coordinate that with our supercomputers to make a more effective mm. economic paradigm that is based in reality so, and then benefit from the theories in a capital market that's built on top of that new social order. And so I, I think that's a really good point and good point to transition now because we're, 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 we're not running out of time, but we're getting to the point where we need to start. I want to, I want to dive into exactly what you were talking about, how, cause we've been talking theory and, and all this different stuff, but you're actually on the ground making this change right now. And I want yes. to talk, I want to talk about the actual steps that you're making to, to do that. Indeed. Thank you. Uh, but I think I'm really grateful that you, provided me the space to, to kind of stretch and outline all that because as I reflect on what I've said and what we've talked about in its whole as a zeitgeist, it's actually pretty coherent. Mm. It's got a lot of loops and it's rather complex what I've outlined, but it's actually rather coherent and succinct. Mm. So I think that I want the transcript of this just to be able to uh, reflect with you and maybe we work on some materials from this. Totally. Because it's a pretty good through line and um, a good summary of uh, of Charles Eisenstein's book, uh, Charles, uh, Ascent of Humanity, I think. Mm -hmm. I think he and I would very much agree with what I just said, because Charles and I have been friends for many years. And he wrote that book, Sacred Economics, and he's working on a number of other materials. He gives about two or three hundred lectures a year, or at least a useful. Whoa. And he's, I'm a big fan of his. So he, well, maybe... When I, last time I saw him was a few years ago in L.A., and he said he was, had done about 220 lectures the year prior. Wow. Yeah, he's quite a prolific uh, ideator, and I have a lot of respect for his work. Um, so let's get down to what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. The idea of a bioregion to use as a general organizing principle around city-state, framework around counties and states and countries, mm -hmm. they're all approximation because we really can't say, well, what are we going to do? Now, institutional machines like governments and corporations and political bodies need some literal structure that has boundaries, but we're talking about a general flow with open boundaries, which is the way communities of plants and animals work. It's really hard to say when one, like you got the Mojave, Mojave Desert and the Sonora Desert. Mm. And when you're, when you're driving across Arizona and California, it's hard to tell where one ecosystem ends and the other one begins, but it's a distinct change. Mm. So that's the kind of edge that I'm talking about where there's not a line, it's a wide open boundary mm. of a bioregion. But what I've found is that if we're going to look at the reality that cities are where humanity makes most of its money, 
and money is the issue of where we need to put that money to to serve the evolution of human survival mm. and survival systems of food, energy, transportation, water, livelihood, culture, infrastructure, cities, housing, all the basics of you know the four Fs and then the 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 the, the, the hierarchy of needs. How do we finance that is really the question that I've been struggling with when you have a hundred trillion dollars in the capital markets and a, you know, a majority of that money is in, in destructive extractive systems that are destroying the very foundation of our biosphere. And then even, even the parts that are not extractive and destructive at best, they're maybe doing, you know, some kind of status quo. And then you've got a chunk of them that maybe it's a growing number uh, in the, what you might call the green economy, the mm-hmm. renewable, the organics and all that. And one of my mentors, Hazel Henderson, just um, published her green transition scoreboard uh, that she started doing in 2010. I've mentioned Hazel a lot. I think you should look her material up. There's a lot to read there. Basically, she presumed about a trillion dollars a year invested in the green economy between 2010 and 2020 would be sufficient to underwrite the new green economy. And she does a little bit of a thermometer up and down the system to then look at how it's evolving. And where that means is how do you create the mechanisms to measure that trillion dollars a year? And then more importantly, if we need to accelerate that, based on recent developments in science and, or maybe the, the developments that are new, but maybe recent developments in cultural understanding of science, mm. we then need to develop capital markets mechanisms that enable more capital to flow to the solutions and regenerative systems. And that's a question that I've taken on for the last 20 years as to how do we actually design a new phone and a new app and a new operating system all at the same time when everyone is screaming about the world is coming to an end when it's actually not. So the idea of a resilience pathway, mm. helping a city with resilience, well, that's an actually a rather straightforward concept that almost anybody would understand is how do we make a resilient, smart city? Mm. London, Mumbai, Los Angeles, Cairo, Mexico City, Rio de Janeiro, Tokyo. These are all megalopolises that are the foundation of our civilization. And how do we help them evolve is actually a very important discipline and science that when you insert capital markets into that resilient pathway of a, of a, of a survivable future and a thrivable future, that gets really interesting because you can combine food systems, Biosphere, technology, green tech, IT, entertainment, building materials, uh, capital markets, blockchain, all the things that, that people on this call would find super sexy and interesting, at least one or two of them. I happen to find everything sexy uh, in this kind of idea. Mm-hmm. So the idea of combining that all together into what is actually a city. No, it's not just where the city ends. Like in Los Angeles, you call it LA, there are actually 80 cities in LA County and then a bioregion that extends out to our supply chain across the planet. But then if you look at those feedback loops and those resource flows, 
yeah. and then look at that city compared to that city compared to that city and develop a metric of how each city interacts with its biosphere and then nuance the data science of measurement of change of state from A to where we are to B, which is, okay, if we're polluting the ocean and we're losing fish because we're putting shit in the water and creating a dead zone, then if we slowly start putting less shit in the water, we will be able to get more fish in the water and then eat better fish and improve the food stock. Mm. Pretty simple science. Mm. But that means that you have to go all the way up the watershed and all the way out into ocean science and look at the whole system, which means that you can't untouch anything. Mm. Then you look at the sustainable development goals and then look at all 17 goals in the context of that bioregion. But as Fritjof Capra just did in an incredibly good video explaining systems thinking, mm. where each of the SDGs cannot be seen in isolation, but in how they interact. But if you look at how each SDG interacts in the context of a mega city, and then look at the system of those 17 in that city, and then how that is in that city, and then look at the map of how all 17 SDGs work across each city, but then to their bioregional feedback map and their, their footprint, mm. then you're actually probably covering about 80% of Earth mm. through mapping SDGs on 17 points of activity in each city times how many city times how many bioregions, we can get a pretty good handle and grasp mm. on what is going on on Earth through mapping it through a very sound set of metrics and categories of thought and disciplines and industries mm. for industrial development so as to develop an industrial development pathway that is more resilient and regenerative to the economy so as to then discern which industrial development pathways are to be prioritized for capital markets innovation for optimal resilience to achieve the SDGs. Hmm. How, are you, how are you getting the capital from these destructive industries into what you're talking about? Well, the key is to start what I just said most people in that conversation, if you were to break it down, someone who's an SDG person or an impact investing person or a resilient city person or a, any of you who are like philanthropy folks or change agents or disruption folks or uh, circular economy, you would all resonate with this. And if you broke down what I said into that way of looking at it, mm -hmm. city by city, bioregion by bioregion, category by category, mm. you can see that in every one of those components is some good ideas and some not so good ideas. Mm. But in every one of those good ideas, maybe one out of 10 is investable. Mm. That is a new idea that you would not have discovered before mm. by looking through that lens. And then if we could aggregate, okay, a thousand good ideas and half of them are investable, we got 500 new investable ideas through simply looking through the lens and the framework I said, and then cross-pollinating those innovations into capital structures and creating regional investment markets for those things is exactly what I'm working on. And which is interesting because it actually ties to something that's very common in early stage venture capital, which is uh, 
thesis driven investment where you basically invest in uh, a thesis about how the way the world works. And what you offered is a thesis that's derived from a unitary perspective of the global uh, biosphere. System, yeah. right. It's basically using systems thinking to design a better organizing framework of ideation to enable mm. the structure of thought and development to be more fractally attuned to the way the earth actually works. Mm. Because I presume there's about a million people on the planet that have done enough of the science to know actually how this planet functions. Mm. So as to be able to fulfill what Bucky Fuller proposed in his operating manual for Spaceship Earth. Mm. And then using that basic motherboard of a fundamental understanding of what we think planet Earth is and how it works and having a coherent understanding between those million people. And then add the apps on top of with sound scientists like Bucky and others to then be a way to operationalize that and then nuance that and then breaking it down city by city, that is actually a very coherent pathway that can actually inform a science-based capital markets. Mm. But I'm not just talking about reductionist, materialist, Newtonian, fucked up physics science. I'm talking about a science that's based on qualitative measurement, communities of practice mm. and nuanced intelligent design based on how dolphin pods think and language of plants and how our heart math institute works but then getting down into the very grounded science that isn't is even as out there as epigenetics mm. it's all within that boundary where good scientists who are thinking like eo wilson and Buckminster Fuller can use ecology-based models to create better systems for capital markets. Because I don't want to get out there and get too hippie for people because I certainly could, and that would be actually a really nice call for us. But let's talk about within the bounds of what most people understand of sound science. And if you're in the SDG world, you believe what most scientists believe. And if you don't even believe in climate change, there's plenty of other science to work around, mm -hmm. pollution, water systems, air quality, mm. uh, overpopulation. We don't need to get into the argument about how much carbon is in the atmosphere. If you don't believe in climate change, do you think it's because the sun is getting hot, hot, hotter? Mm. We're not going to argue with you. Then get down to work and let's make a resilient city and stop bitching about what you agree about and just mm. get down to work. Because mm. I'm not too concerned about some points of argument. I'm more interested in finding ways to work together. And finding what works, essentially. And financing that cooperative behavior. Yeah. Hmm. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really exciting. It's, it's funny because I've... So, I've mm -hmm. Go for it. So let's just keep going a little bit because you asked me to get a little bit more tangible about yeah. what I'm actually working on. So then look at then the fifth largest economy on the planet, California. Mm -hmm. Was where, where I am and I think you are. I'm in California. Yep. We're both in California. It's the fifth largest economy. But if you look at the bioregions of the state, you've got mountains, you've got not rainforests, but you've got coastal forests, you've got uh, alpine and desert and coastal regions. We're pro fundamentally a full spectrum Mediterranean economy with a Mediterranean biosphere. There's five Mediterranean bioregions, the Mediterranean itself. Uh, you've got Australia, South Africa, the, and the southern tip of uh, Latin America. 
But if you look at that bioregional approach, whatever we come up with in California, mm. that, that nuances our survivability as a species in a bioregional context of a Mediterranean bioregion, then there's a, immediately applicable in four other places on planet Earth, whatever we come up with here. So immediately that's laterally applicable, one. Two, uh, every desert could also be applicable to desert regions and every, you know, so every alpine environment could be equated with like a Nordic. So we have a lot of test laboratories in California par, as far as climate and plant and animal species. We don't have a lot of tropical, but that is a, is a living laboratory in California. But then if you look at a group called the California Stewardship Network, who has developed 16 regional conversations over the last 20 years to then look at regional economic development in the context of stewarding our state and our place and living from a place-based service mind. And then the California Forward think tank, they came together to design California Economic Summit to achieve a triple bottom line economy here in the state. Mm. And the idea there is a bipartisan public-private partnership type of discussion to then come together region by region, take a regional approach to economic development, but then that, that listening to each region's needs is a fundamental way to approach the things that we've talked about today to then start there where these two ideas can meet like two oceans meeting mm. of the most advanced biosphere, biomimicry for finance modeling can work on the ground in five or 10 regions in California to make our economy work and listen to where farming communities and urban settings and the rural urban divide can be bridged mm. and then finance those bridging into more effective means mm. for our, our management of a state. That's what the California Economic Summit is all about. So it's I'm, on, mm. I'm on the steering committee for the last six years mm. and my role is to look at new systems for designing capital markets. Mm. So essentially, uh, it's at the discussion stage where there's a public-private uh, uh, partnership, and it, based on that discussion, then you'll start developing ways that you can actually inject capital into those things that come out of that discussion. Well, that well, that discussion's well underway. It's uh, been yeah. going on. I've been involved since 2012, mm. uh, based on the simple notion that traditional capital markets and the Wall Street model, and and big banks buying the little banks, mm. and venture capital focused more on software and computer systems, generally speaking. Again, these are overgeneralizations. Mm. But the idea then, that means brick-and-mortar-based and, and rural-based innovations in business are not as easily financed. There's access to capital issues mm. in a lot of communities in the state. And those capital uh, issues are not really anything, but you don't make as much money financing that one you do make more of that one. So therefore, we're going to only finance that second one that makes more money. But it doesn't mean you're going to lose money in the one that didn't get financed. So there's yeah. lots of opportunities that will not lose you money if you finance them well. And there's a lot of opportunities with fintech and you know, all kinds of alternative lending going on. But we want, to, we want to flip that to then how do we optimize resilient pathways for communities to, be, to achieve triple bottom line and create a lot of prosperity and finance that. That's the kind of uh, innovation we're looking to create in the next 10 years of work with the Economic Summit. 
Very cool. Where we can co combine the agenda of capital markets, new governor, new you know, thinking for uh, climate adaptation finance and new science behind all this and new opportunities with blockchain, blockchain and AI mm -hmm. to evolve the way. And then, you know, developments like think, you know, think tanks and incubators and in, in, in inner cities and opportunity zones. And these are all really fertile soil for mm -hmm. us to innovate these ideas into novel structures mm -hmm. for capital markets. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing. Reminds me slightly, not it's in a in a similar vein, but maybe tangential. Uh, there's another guy called Mark Lutter who I interviewed, who is building charter cities in Africa uh, with a similar type of exploration of what could work, um, and he's targeting Africa because that's where a lot of economic growth will take, um, which is interesting. Well, I think that's really fantastic. In fact, you know, Africa, the Western African countries, just decided to do what what. Uh, Europe has done for many years around the euro and create their own currency without using blockchain. Hmm. Most blockchain uh, revolutionists are not aware that to create a new system of capital, you need to have a social order that functions off, offline first. Hmm. And then you can use blockchain to innovate around that. Hmm. But the key is the agreement structures is really interesting. So West Africa is doing that. Ghana, I've heard through colleagues uh, who are working in Ghana that there's some really, really innovative things on the ground. You may have heard about something many years ago, the M-Pesa, which is a text-based bank in Kenya. Mm -hmm. So these innovations are all over the world, and there are communities in the developed markets, you might say, in Europe and uh, wealthy countries of Asia and the United States that could benefit from the developments of ideas and other countries and vice vice versa and we also have what i call emerging domestic domestic emerging markets mm -hmm. namely if you go to any of the the native american reservations here in america you will see some situations that are pretty stark and mm -hmm. unfortunate uh where you don't need to fly across the planet to help someone who's starving to death mm -hmm. in their um, own community so there's some opportunities here but we want to see how we can say is it Africa or Native Americans, mm. or is it Latin America, or is it those sex slaves, or is it that mm. those child trafficking? All those issues are equally important and have to be dealt with systemically, mm. place by place. And these place-based systemic solutions to connect the dots mm. are the most interesting things that I want to really continue to do research on and bring these together and then cross-pollinate globally to mm. create a planetary solution in 100 cities. Mm. That's really cool. So I uh, we gotta we gotta wrap up now, but I think we should probably do a, a second interview at some point to talk about all the other stuff we wanted to talk about. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy talking, as you can tell. Uh, I hope you heard me okay because I've got my side of stuff today. But I really enjoyed our our discussion. And can you let our listeners know how how they can find more about you in case they're they're interested by what you've been talking about? Well, my website, gregwent.com, is probably the easiest way to find me or on social media, but I don't usually accept uh, invitations to connect unless I've met somebody, so yeah. probably an email is best, mm. gregwent.com, G-R-E-G-W-E-N-D-T.com has a contact link, and I'm in the process of redoing the website, but uh, you'll see what it is right now, and uh, please message me or email me if you want to know more. Cool. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Greg Went. Just so you know, I release episodes every Monday and Friday before your morning commute. And for the next month, I'll be publishing some episodes from the interview series I did at a conference about the health of oceans. So watch out for those on Wednesdays. By the time I publish this one, there will be a couple more. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed this. Please let me know your thoughts. If you are interested in that application for the online course, please apply and find out more information by signing up for the blog, stuartallsop.substack.com. I hope you have a great day.